Welcome to Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Today's story, All He Surveys, Volume 1, Chapter 22. five weeks, real and subjective time, were spent on the move. We kept the squadron in transit, stopping here and there to be deliberately seen within the distance of a single jump from what might normally be considered juicy targets. We signed up more civvy contractors to dead drop supplies in deep space. Tramp freighters would get coordinates, jump to randomly selected star systems, and just push their cargoes out. It was a half-in-advance, half-upon-recovery payment scheme, and Syndra kept all the balls in the air, in addition to her rapidly growing list of other duties. She and I had a strange, convoluted system of contact and message relays set up, so that it wasn't unusual for four or five days to go between missives, directives, and reports back and forth. This might have been poor scheduling from a modern warfare standpoint, but it was adequate for disjointed data dissemination while keeping everyone without the need to know guessing what we were up to. We had the couriers with us and used them for any truly urgent communications. Those were direct here to their deliveries impossible to intercept since their flight plans were crew-specific. That is, the pilots made them up last minute and told no one in advance. Oftentimes, they leapfrog jumps one after the other for the sake of security, since such methods added only minutes to the duration of the flights in real space while obfuscating courses, departure points, and destinations for any outside observers. It would have taken a treacherous Silver Flare crewman to make a dent in that system. Elmon trusted them, and he was smart, so I did too. The first direct exchange of arms between actual military vessels in the two factions took place far from all this hit-and-run nonsense when a half-dozen Kadra warships dropped into Ibn Hara's star system looking to light up Muerenji Aman, a jump-enabled high dock dedicated to the quick servicing of war vessels. It sat right at the edge of the gravity well, which was a convenience for our allies, and it must be said our enemies. The big-eared intelligence specialists the Righteous Circle had on the job had gotten wind of this somehow and passed word to Moerenji Aman's command staff in time for it to star jump out. When the Kadra raiding squad arrived, they had only a few minutes to sort out their confusion. They confirmed through sensors that their target was entirely absent just before a circle squad popped in behind and began an engagement. Surprise! Both sides had a mix of military and civvy vessels, but the cadre group was better prepared for a fight, even with the ambush. Our side got a bit of a pasting, to be honest, despite what should have been a crippling counterblow. In the end, 
Piani's forces were able to entirely disable two of the civilian ships on our side and damage one of the military vessels before squandering their advantage by star-jumping away, possibly in anticipation of non-existent circle backup forces. Whatever the motivation, their ships were almost entirely unscathed when they left. The battle would have constituted an unequivocal loss for us, except that the cadre had failed to achieve its real objective. Nineteen light-years away, at nearly the same time, other circle forces, working from plans that hadn't been assembled in haste, popped into Waymore, a binary star system that possessed several large colony stations, including a bunch of cadre-aligned military refit and supply centers. The target was a series of traffic buoys which would allow a large squad of our vessels to jump in and then out again, shooting up the place, without any telltale traces of their out-system headings being recorded. These could be used to calculate possible destinations, which was something we didn't want cadre forces to be able to do. Unfortunately, a former Kajit battleship named Regina Solis, which had joined up with Admiral Omatsu, was in system at the time, performing guard duty. It wasn't in any of the heads-up reports from the same intelligence group that had done so well with Ibn Hara, and the raiding jump fighters got a nasty surprise. Regina Solis picked them off from over a million kilometers away, using massive pulses from their main neutron gun battery. Pop, 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 and they were gone, while the buoys were still intact. The plan had been for the small attacking vessels to star-jump back after completing their mission and give the all-clear to the big squadron. They never did, so scouts were sent in to some oblique jump points around the star system, far away from anything of value other than intel. The spreading debris fields of the circle ships, and continued presence of the original target buoys, and the unexpected sight of Regina Solis, said all that needed knowing about what had happened. So, we were even up on objective successes and failures between my squad's actions and those two, though it was hard to see it that way. We had lost vessels and lives, while the cadre had lost frozen meals and lives. The most surprising piece of intel to float to the surface, at least to me, was that Liku Omatsu had not only not been killed for failing Piani and her pals in capturing the Kajits, but had been made overall military commander of the cadre forces. Maybe those family connections of his were good for something after all. I read all the intelligence reports that came my way, but deliberately avoided the public news feeds. And I continued to delete all messages out of hand from the circle bigwigs I'd left behind in that last meeting room. Though you'd think they couldn't argue with success, they seemed determined to try. So long as we were getting results, or staying out of their way, I figured we might have a chance to make a difference out in the field. What Piani and her people thought of us could be easily guessed, so I chose not to worry about that either. We were just little fish nibbling at the toes of our enemies, but if they lost enough toes, they'd fall. Aside from those two major exchanges, other circle groups seemed to be mostly involved in disinformational posturing, 
or positional changes preparatory to larger offenses, offenses that seemed to evaporate as mission objectives changed. That would have been maddeningly frustrating if Intel and various assessments hadn't revealed that the opposition was doing the very same thing. For 16 days after the Waymore debacle, both sides managed little more than to sniff around each other, taking the enemy's measure, seeking advantage, and abandoning plans as quickly as they were adopted. Ease new policies from Circle come through, Captain Dugor announced in a morning comm call from his office on Budenak, practicing his English. Ease be having any interest? Do you have any? I countered, and he just laughed. My disregard for elder statesmen and social ranks had become well-known by this time. Shocked at first, then amused, most of the commanding officers of the squad were drafting their own plans and policies around the fact that I was intent on not following the polite rules of society. It was brought up once, obliquely, and not even in my presence, I'd heard about it third-hand, that my behavior might paint them all with the same brush, and that it could hurt their prospects or careers in future dealings with the families. Worrying about people worrying seemed worrisome unto itself, so I decided to place all grumbling into the ignore pile, along with those myriad complaints from the old men back on Bankata Station. Malcontents could leave the squad if it bothered them enough. As in every other aspect of life, people who didn't like me or what I was doing were free to keep their distance. Well, maybe not Piani Trissal. Her incognito warship had not made any more confirmed appearances, though there were a few civilian ships that had gone missing, some of them with familiar names. Tramp freighters were notorious for missing deadlines and breaking contracts, but it smelled off to me. It could have been the assassin ship, happy with small pickings for some unknown reason. Or maybe it had reverted to a more conventional profile and was already back in regular military service. Those were the two perceived possibilities put forth when I brought it up at an intership working meal. Should Lady Trissal's intelligence group get hold of our commercial freight schedule for deliveries and drop-offs? I said over baked dumplings and white sauce. The pirate might show up again. If the cadre could prove our shippers were working directly for the war effort, they'd register them as legitimate targets. That kind of proof takes time, though. It's much faster for them to send in their painted-up predator to hit our supply routes. It would get the job done and maintain legal deniability. That ship is still out there. So I want to put it down. We'll need our own leads, Budenax XO said. I've been looking into any sightings, docking records, or rumors about it, but so far nothing. Lieutenant Commander Berker grimaced then, anticipating, I think, my next statement. His English was quite good, and I learned he'd done some training in the Alliance a few years back through some sort of exchange program. Such things went on all the time around the galaxy, just as if the supernations weren't rivals. I'd come to respect the officers of this squad, mostly because they'd stopped respecting my title more than the man who held it. 
The captain and his executive officer sat at the table with me, along with a few fresh-faced junior officers who mostly kept quiet. I had bowed to their wishes and was holding court in the officer's mess. Once in a while wouldn't hurt. Then it sounds like we're on the hunt, I replied. Don't give me that face, LTC. We can squeeze in a few more runs on cadre supply lines as time permits. We ought to mix it up, though. They must see our pattern by now. The more we do the same thing, the easier it'll be for them to lay a trap. Already, the defenses around the depots have increased. You've seen that yourself, haven't you, Captain? Duh, he replied smoothly, sipping his tea while pushing away an empty tray. The guy was a fast eater, even more than me. Is being true, or maybe we is just see what is happened when a war is happened. Maybe. I studied him, because he could be hard to read sometimes. Your view on the raider? He said nothing for a bit, but then smiled in a hungry manner. Squad doing important work right now, but must to say, pirate chases would be delicious. One or two of the younger ones slapped the table several times in enthusiasm, and all of them were grinning in the same way as Captain de Gore. The excitement of the squadron was palpable once knowledge of the new mission, and specifically the target, was circulated. That didn't stop some officers of the different ships from complaining, of course. The inconvenience of new equipage, the redesigning of drills and mission-specific training, to say nothing of the navigation requirements. They had to halt what they were doing and do something else. Of course, it wasn't a democracy. They had their orders and they knew it. But I encouraged free conversation. Colonel Jarno, overall commander in charge of Dagger Squadron, for instance, once again brought up a valid logistics point concerning parts and supplies, a problem which had never quite gone away. Attention to this delayed us for three more days as we set up a dedicated delivery specifically for the striker birds. He likely saved lives by insisting upon the point, and went up in my estimation accordingly. Our first few jumps were of no special account. We came in, and if it was a system neutral in the conflict, most were, or one aligned with the cadre, we acted loud and twitchy for the sake of putting fear into the local city bureaucracies. We demanded information. We threatened, warned, and implied, but never attacked. And they didn't either. We got no leads and hadn't expected to. We were beating the bushes, hoping to flush our quarry into the open. It seemed a good chance that the ship in question, if it wasn't already retrofitted to its original profile, would be hiding out in a neutral port somewhere, planning to escape notice until it was called for. The raider would have been safe from this sort of hunt if it stayed hidden in a cadre military base. But of course, should anyone find out about that and relay the information to the college or the throne, it would look mighty bad for them. Better for it to steer clear of legitimate forces. That's what a real pirate would do. But once word reached the ship's crew that a task force had been specifically assembled to hunt them down, 
which is what we told everyone, they would be more likely to make mistakes. This was a standard anti-piracy technique, and it was effective. The raider had to either keep well hidden, which kept it out of action, or it had to keep moving, which meant it needed fuel, life support recharges, ordnance stock-ups, parts, maintenance, and more. It meant eyes watching for a wanted ship that was coming and going. Eyes belonging to people who, due to our vague threats at random ports, were now more afraid of us than of them. We were shaking down a rimstay in Merlin's system for information when we finally heard about a major engagement between the Circle of Righteousness and the treasonous cadre. I had had no heads up, which shouldn't have been surprising, considering I wasn't reading most of the reports, but it was unexpected nonetheless. The forces assembled and overseen by our allied families met a military fleet of combined cadre forces on the outskirts of an uninhabited star system designated 8378-09R. Details were sketchy yet, as we were putting together facts from embedded civilian journalists filing censored reports, as well as non-classified communiques from people as ignorant as we, but it wasn't looking good for our side. That was some grim news, and forced an impromptu conference call between the captains, even as our interrogators were grilling the Director of Defense on one of the Merlin Rimstays for info he likely didn't have. Should we join up with the other forces so we may be redeployed into the larger fight? Senior Pilot Koremka of Dagger Squad queried one and all. His strikers had been underutilized throughout our missions and had nothing at all to do at the moment besides buzzing the locals. We're all part of a voluntary assemblage, I acknowledged with a nod. If anyone wants to rejoin their previous commands, they're welcome to. I'm no military man, as you all know. I'll be of no use back there, so I'll continue the hunt out here. I'll keep going even if every ship wants to return. I can take commercial transit and just keep sniffing. What would do then if find something? Captain Dugor asked, curious about my plans and schemes. They seemed to strike him as endlessly entertaining. Follow and look for evidence of collaboration between the pirate and the cadre. Some noble families would ignore this information if it were to their advantage, so I'd pass whatever proof I might find onto others who wouldn't. They could make a very big deal out of it, embarrassing the emperor on an international scale. Then we'd see some action from him. He and the others pondered my words. There was no valid reason to keep S.R. Karemka or his strikers around just for a snipe hunt. I could have pulled rank and insisted... But if they didn't want to be there, then I didn't want them there. This thing had always had a time limit. Now I knew how close it was. Yes, we'd put a little pressure on the cadre's ability to wage war. But what did that matter in the scale of things? The drums of war, real war, were finally sounding. And these people could hear them. Okay, I said with a nod after a moment of thought. We've done good work out here, but it looks like that might be over now. Contact your former commanders. Use the couriers. Let's get you people into the big fight, if that's what you want. 
This was received with curious, even perplexed expressions by others. We're breaking up the task force, Commander Bargat asked firmly, wanting a definitive answer. <laughs> if there's no force left to fight with, I'd say so, I laughed. As Famo of the Vernes family and ranking nobleman, you do not insist on another course? <laughs> Absolutely not. I'll let your generals and admirals do the bossing around. I've never had a definitive military position in this conflict, only the goal of hurting the enemy. It allows me, and anyone who follows, a great deal of free movement. If I can make one pitch to keep the squadron together, it's exactly that. If you want to say in how you fight and what it is exactly you do in this war, staying with me is how you'll get it. If you'd prefer that someone else tell you what to do and send you on missions from which you might not return, then go ahead. I can't promise that my way will be any less dangerous, but if it actually comes down to that, at least with me, you'll have had some input in how you died. I said it casually because I honestly didn't think it mattered. People were going to stay or go as they saw fit. Major engagements were starting to happen, and we were piddling around out in the dark. There was no glory to be had out here, no great honor. We were marauders at best, and maybe now a kill squad in search of a ghost. Open war produced acclaimed heroes. Guerrilla war? Not really. Three of the men on the line actually broke into applause, and one cheered my words, distorting everyone's audio for a moment. The others, even senior pilot Gavin Koremka, were grinning and nodding. I reacted with surprise, I'm sure, because it was very surprising. Is well said, famo, Captain Dugor put in cheerfully. We talk, then give you final decision. Sounds good, I said and dropped off the call. There wasn't much left for it but to make other plans. The enthusiasm shown appeared more like gratitude for being considerate than it did anything else. I knew this crowd was unused to noblemen caring one way or the other what they thought, and they'd been trained all their lives to see that as normal. So when they came across a titled elitist however humble, who let them choose the course of their lives, it was probably appreciated. The next decision was exactly how to continue. Where was my best chance of a lead? The current star system was looking like a waste of time, and I pored over the list of others that had reported earlier contact with a ship matching the raider's general description or systems where it seemed like they were lying about it. The lead interrogator called in then, with the welcome news that I was wrong about this place. A ship bearing the profile of our target's disguise had rolled through just five days before. It was showing the colors of a certain nobleman, but cross-references turned up no matches in anyone's personal fleets. The docking crew that had refueled the thing claimed its hull showed signs of a hasty refit. Non-standard attachments, like cargo frames and gantries. But seeing it up close like that? Well, a few of the servicing team were sure the ship was really a military light coaster, 
It was strange, the interrogator had been told. Such modifications would serve no purpose since a vessel like that was meant for fast attacks, not freight handling. The warship's power output and center of mass would have been all wrong for such a job. Did it have a designation? Well, yes and no. Supposedly, it was the light frame hauler AV-2070-V4, Happy Choice. But under the gantries welded to the hull, a technician swore he saw the name Ludvella. It had been partially obscured, but readable. There was a Ludvella on record as being a light coaster owned by a certain Duke Heyo Praman, though it had been recently decommissioned because of unspecified technical problems. Praman was on our list of cadre members, though hadn't, as yet, been distinguished by much. All this seemed pretty clear to me, but bad data such as improper ship identifications, were common when there were interruptions in the free flow of information, such as there were during conflicts between families. In other words, the possibility existed that this was just mistaken identity. Had it registered a port of call? Yes, but its exit vector from the star system had been inconsistent with such a heading. And either way... Happy choice, Star jumped out as soon as refueling had been completed. No one had had a chance to talk to them. But here was the interesting part, the station's director of security had assured. Happy choice's dock officer, who'd been overseeing the ship's side of the refueling process, had specifically demanded that all fuel tanks and fuel lines be filled so as to allow for as much range as possible. Flying with full lines was patently dangerous, and a basic safety violation in the civilian arena. Even I knew that much. It was done on military vessels sometimes, for special missions, but only if the need was great enough to offset the risks. There were several cadre military bases within easy range of a light coaster, or even a light frame hauler, none of which would have required full lines to reach. I thanked our interrogator on a job well done, instructed him to compensate that director of security for his time and cooperation from the mission's petty cash account, and rang off. No food. No air. Just fuel. The normal conclusion would have been that we were dealing with an AI-controlled vessel, a machine roving the stars all on its own, without any human oversight, was astoundingly illegal. Corporate space supposedly used such vessels for border patrol, but there wasn't here, and Happy Choice definitely wasn't a Moneyland ship. Besides, in addition to the testimony of the Merlin Rimstay's director of security and the docking crew, some smudgy vid imagery from the docks showed a couple members of the human crew as they came out to double-check the dock workers' efforts. There were people aboard. I called up a star chart of the surrounding systems in my eye view and scrolled through, one by one, until I found what I was after. Another busy, neutral star system where ships came and went quickly, 
restlessly. It was too far for a light frame hauler to make in one jump, but just on the far end of a light coaster's range. It was just about then that I received a flashing alert for an incoming call on a private channel. It was Captain Dugore, grinning even wider than before. Is surprise to me, Famo. Every commander in squadron choose to stay, even Koremka. You inspired the faith. That's a surprise to me, too, I admitted, matching his smile. But then I paused, letting both of ours fade. He knew something was up. Their timing is perfect. I think I know where our pirate went. Juacod system was home to no less than 32 rimstays, seven large colony stations, a mob of high docks, and one terraformed world called Palau, named after some old Earth location of which I'd never heard. Collectively, this star system sported a very high population, as such things went, and was a commercial crossroads, largely owned by corporate interests controlled by the Imperial throne, along with a club of privileged others. Some of these were on both sides of the conflict, financially speaking. A deep dive into the fiscal and legal records by an onboard solicitor AI, it took nearly five minutes to pick it all apart, which was a lot of time for a program like that, implied that Juacad was very securely neutral in the conflict. That wasn't surprising, Officially, the Emperor was neutral, as were nearly all the noble families outside of this particular region of the Empire. So far. These things could sometimes sprout wings if you weren't careful, and start flapping their way across the stars. It's what Marzian, Augustan, heck, even Piani, I'm sure, were all hoping to avoid. Juacad enjoyed high levels of trade and traffic. To protect and encourage those things, the star system maintained a local civilian defensive body made up of a mix of heavily armed and armored commercial vessels of a mercenary sort, as well as several large and very dangerous military surplus gunboats converted to defense work in the private sector. These latter were scary things. Giant runner-class battleboats, the size and general shape of Imperial destroyers. They were commercially owned by the same security provider as the other vessels, all on long-term contract to the local government. The runners were legally allowed as civilian defense assets because they did not possess star jump engines and were, therefore, at least in theory, locked to this system. They had the same reactor output as starships of their general tonnage, though, which was nearly entirely dedicated to their main guns, directed energy weapons of astounding efficacy. These boats could splatter enemy vessels across much of the length and breadth of the gravity well. Essentially, they were highly mobile gun platforms, which, when coupled with a flock of smaller security vessels, made Juacad a safe haven for societies, communities, and commercial trade. And for assassin ships, even if they didn't know it.
Though the name Happy Choice was being used in the official reports and records, our squad referred to it as Ludvella right from the start. And almost instantly, this was shortened to Bloody Lud. The thing about Imperial military starships, which most people wouldn't know who never worked on a space dock, is that they have specialized link-ups, allowing for both in-port and in-flight refueling. A station servicing a light coaster required a military-style adapter to be in place at the end of the fuel line, or for a fuel port dedicated to military-class vessels. Such ships demanded special attention. Supplies and fuel, certainly. General maintenance, likely. Service and repairs, possibly. Even paint jobs and a whole new disguise. All of it happening under the oblivious noses of those spooky warboats. Juacad, a bustling place. Space stations deep in system. Space stations further out. Even a terraformed planet. The kind of service the raider needed would be expensive if provided by civilian sources. In the Empire, the nobles held the money, but it was the civilian guilds that made the economy work. They were roughly equivalent in form and function to trade unions in the Alliance, though with a caste system in place. Most people were born into a particular guild and remained there all of their days. In order to gain some advancement in economic and basic human rights, the working and peasant classes had long before banded together and held firm on the labor front. As a result, the guilds were more or less able to put something called egalitarian production into place, which was far less inclusive than you might expect from the sound of it. Even so, over the centuries, a powerful, entrenched middle class arose, bolstered by the strength and protectionism of these guilds. It manifested in many ways, large and small. One of the biggest was in CUSO, standing for Quad Inutum Sustentationum Sodalium Spatium Operarios, or the United Brotherhood of Space Maintenance Workers. The Latin was suspect, maybe, but their power and ubiquity ensured that labor protection laws remained in effect, even when it wasn't always sensible. To wit, space vessels operating in the Empire had to all be equipped with an exterior port called a fueling dock. This allowed for manual top-offs of liquid fuel and reaction mass, as well as life support recharges for vessels in vacuum or when they were berthed at a station. In nearly every other part of space, this sort of labor was automated through the use of drones and dedicated AIs. Not so in noble space. Cuso fought for every job, no matter how outdated or even downright wasteful often accepting the continuation of dangerous or demeaning work conditions alongside pay cuts in order for the jobs to be saved. Their low-speak cry of Redunom, or No Man is Redundant, became famous throughout space, leaping over territorial borders with the strident legs of solidarity. But there are some places in a nation's character where labor concerns are put aside for the sake of national interest. 
One of these tends to be the military. As a result, those vessels of a purely combat-related purpose could not afford to be left behind in the ever-present race for technological advancement. Fueling docks provide jobs, perhaps, but they couldn't keep Imperial warships on par with the rest of the galaxy. Because of this, military vessels, among a handful of other types in the Empire, could use automated systems in addition to manual, since they were safer, faster, and cheaper to operate. Hunting for the pirate had made the pirate bolt. Getting out of Merlin's system in a hurry, they hadn't wanted to draw too much attention to themselves, so manual services were used to refuel. Automated services would have meant fewer eyes on them, but automated servicing of a civilian light freighter on this side of the border was noteworthy. Cusos who might notice things, or a civilian light freighter without any need for Cuso workers? They'd had to make a decision, but I think we would have found their trail back in Merlin either way. By the time it arrived here, Bloody Lud would have been running on fumes. A predator, just like any ship, needed consumables. Food, water, air, and more fuel. In addition, a predator had to have easy access to the outside galaxy, with fast in-and-outs near a viable jump point. Spending days crawling out of a well would be simply unacceptable. Zhuakad's star system had no military bases, as such were defined by the inconsistent laws of the Empire. Their private security boats may not have been of a civvy design per se, but all of them now sported fueling docks. Indeed, the installation of such was a condition of purchase for the war surplus battle boats in the first place. That was public information, as the labor negotiations surrounding the acquisition had sparked a wildcat strike some years back, partly over this issue. Cuso workers were included in the crew complements of the boats. There were Cusos on every station, and upon the surface of Palau. The only place you wouldn't expect to automatically find them, in fact, was upon private property. Thus far in our conflict, cadre forces had displayed deep pockets. It could be presumed that discretionary funds from hidden accounts, earmarked for operating costs, were available so that Ludvella's speed of action could remain high, even while in hiding. There were so many places to lay low in Zhuakad, so many berths where a disguised tramp with fake credentials could pull in and be utterly unremarkable. But taken together, all these details and conclusions were winnowing of the available facts. Ludvella was likely on one of the rimstays right near the system jump point. It was probably berthed all on its own, without any other parked vessels or crews nearby to gawk and ask questions. And it was almost certainly being serviced at the moment, soon to fly off on more dark deeds. I sent out a message to Syndra to be forwarded to our network of tramps. It said, in effect, that I needed to book a dedicated charter run to Zhuakad. 
We camped out in one of our tween-star rendezvous points, twiddling our thumbs, waiting for details. Actually, I spent time in the galley, annoying the sergeant who was head cook, trying to master that dang souffle. I got it to rise and stay until it was removed from the oven, but the flavor was off, owing to the fake eggs, fake milk, fake butter, and fake cook. Taste testers said nice things, but they knew who I was and were probably lying. Chef Irina would have been unimpressed. Of this I had no doubt. One day, during mid-shift, the courier returned with news that a privately owned jump shuttle had been sourced. It would arrive in a couple days, and a reservation for three open freeze tubes had been made, under the name of the Keswin Party, a trio of structural engineers who needed to catch a connecting flight in Zhuakad, heading further into the Empire. Just some professional guys on their way to a job somewhere. If there was a watch on the comings and goings of strangers and ships, this was about as innocuous as we were going to get. Two days later, it arrived. Why you, famo? Captain Dugor asked, joining me in the companionway as I was approaching the airlock on port side where the shuttle was docked. We might have to launch an attack in a legally neutral star system. If this blows back on us, the rest of you would be absolved of responsibility, to some extent, if you had no direct knowledge of the details and had been given the go-ahead from the ranking nobleman. No ducking here, no dodging. If the mission goes sour, this will be on me and me alone. I'd get some sort of censure or fine that would just as likely execute you guys. Say thank you. Thank you is foolish. I'm saying this for Verne's sake. Family would tell you, I think, is risk unacceptable. Everything is set? Ja, is all arranged. And the timing of it? The flares? The squad? We're all set, right? Is clear. Will be no mistakes. You to have safe passage, Familiancano de Santos. Thanks. Listen for the word. And I left through the open hatchway. My two companions for the operation were security types, acting as bodyguards. They were to pretend ignorance of low-speak, Seishan, English, or pretty much any other language, should we be stopped in question. I'd do all the talking, and with my own language failings, it would, or could, provide just enough irritation to any overworked security personnel or bureaucrats to pass us through. Assuming our fake creds held up, I'd been told they were the best. In point of fact, the circle, as a whole, had yet to get caught out on that part of things. Good people were doing our forgeries, amending ident records, swapping names in territorial files, and all the rest of it. Identity manipulation had risen to high art over the centuries, and in the security field, that meant everything. Part of the plan was for one of the silver flares to hang out in a tiny off-axis jump point in Zhuakad system and wait for our signal. Like all stars, this one had many mapped points where vessels could potentially arrive or depart, most of which were of poor quality. 
Some were unstable, appearing and disappearing at random times. Others were stable, but at strange angles in three-dimensional space-time compared to the stellar plane, making them useless from a traffic standpoint. Couriers often used these last, though, to receive information packets from legitimate data brokers. They'd pop in, radio or tight-beam their presence to orbital control, log into the system-wide data networks, send and receive scheduled information dumps, then jump out, refueling in other star systems. It saved time and eased traffic. For safety's sake, most ships recharged fuel, air, and all such after every star jump. Couriers and espionage vessels, which might be one and the same, I'd learned, were generally designed to go two or three consecutive jumps without such maintenance. Almost any ship could, in a pinch, but that was quite a bit different from having that express capability built right in. It made the trips faster and less expensive. In our case, it also meant the courier could plop down into an obscure jump point and wait as long as the mission took, standing by for a signal it would carry back to our squadron. The shuttle's co-pilot, named Lek, was a rodent of a man, sporting a perpetually sly smile. I'd almost say a leer, for everyone and everything. Nonetheless, he had a good record, and a minor certification in cold passenger handling. The freeze tubes themselves were some slick, automated things, with a dedicated AI to oversee cold passengers. I laid in a cradle waiting for the sleep drugs to kick in, a machine voice whispering sweet, soothing, sleepy-time nothings in my ear. Once I was out, the AI would close the tube and do a flash freeze to keep me still, or so the digital pamphlet I read while getting drowsy assured. The whole thing only took about an hour from boarding to ice cube status. Not too shabby... Uh, on some ships, that, uh, that that sort of thing, it, it took all shift. When I opened my eyes again, I felt like I'd been out for only a few minutes. There was a smell in the air, though, like an open freezer. Ozonic, but not quite. Otherwise, I was fine and one of the other guys with me was already on his feet, heading to the shower. He was a tall, lean man with a dark complexion and a beard streaked gray. He'd been borrowed from another command, as he had undercover expertise. His name was Goda, and was said to be a demon with a blade. He nodded briefly before disappearing, saying only, Famo? If I hadn't read the other guy's jacket, I would have never known his real name because everyone, officers and enlisted hands alike, just called him Chicharron, a moniker the origin of which I was ignorant. He had caramel skin and was shorter than me, though stocky and strong-looking. He was fully awake in his cradle and had fallen into coughing. Fluid dumped into the lungs if you moved too quickly after cold passage. This was especially common your first few times, but some people were just prone to it. He saw me getting up and tried to do the same, even while choking, 
but I crossed over to his tube and pushed him back onto his pillow. You still need a few minutes. Take them. This'll pass. I'm only going to the shower. Goat is awake. Everything's okay. The man nodded and hacked some more, grateful for the chance to recover. Just to double-check my offhand assurance, though, I activated my retinals, logged into the shuttle's comm network, and called the co-pilot to verify. Yes, all set. We transitioned three hours ago at JP-128, a prime arrival point for Zhuacad. We are on approach to Soursop Station. Your gamble may have paid off already, FAMO. Status updates came in when we arrived, showing that the high dock, the Jato station, was privately leased last week and is now out of bounds to unauthorized visitors. The Jato is about 1.5 million clicks from Soursop. It's the closest we can get. How long till we dock? About six hours, he replied grimly, though with that devilish smile. The dichotomy was unsettling, and I wondered if the man had cultivated it on purpose, or was entirely oblivious to how he made people feel. We are in a holding orbit due to entry delays. I think Soursop is short on personnel. They say you fellas can do your interview screenings with an AI over comm channels beforehand. It would save time getting through high dock security when you get aboard. That was something, anyway. We were just more passengers here, more faces in the crowd. I spent the next half hour showering, grooming, and getting myself into a clean travel suit. An electrical engineer wouldn't dress in a spacer's flight coveralls. The suit had been someone else's back aboard Budanak, and it didn't fit me too well. I looked dumpy and rumpled in the mirror display, but that seemed appropriate. Actually, that looked entirely normal. My own flight suits probably fit no better than this. It was something to think about. The day of the tailored suit, as I'd come to think of it, weighed on my mind just then, as did the reasons for it. Our security screenings with the AI were formalities. This was a dead-eye that greeted me in the pop-up hollow display in the shuttle's tiny common room. It bore a bland, feminine persona and appeared to have light brown skin and short hair. It smiled and asked the usual list of questions, wherein it went over my travel pass, detail by detail, and asked me to state aloud what was already listed there. It didn't need a repeat of these details, of course. It was looking for telltale signs of subterfuge or mental illness. This sort of thing was highly hit or miss because telltales could range widely from culture to culture and through gender variances. False positives and missed warning signs were common, but it did weed out the more obvious troublemakers. The entire interview took about 15 minutes and the AI signed off by thanking me for my time. The three of us would have no idea how we did with the software until we arrived at the high dock. But there wasn't much to this sort of thing, nor much you could do about it. If any of us were going to be flagged, it would likely be me. But playing the ignorant foreigner card could usually get a human to override negative AI conclusions. People from different places spoke differently, 
acted differently and got nervous or shy about different things, and no limited cognizance program would ever be able to tell the difference. A true AI endowed with sapience might have had a better chance, but such things were expensive and constructed for very different jobs than easing traffic on an entrance queue. The wait turned out to be closer to eight hours than six. I actually ate, took a nap, and showered again in that time. When it was our turn at the dock, Lek came back to the small ship's common room. It is turn and burn here. They want us out as soon as possible. You fellas only had carry-on bags, so when the hatch opens, step out and go to the ident desk. Assuming you don't get turned around or arrested right then and there, we'll be buttoning up the ship and disengaging. Fuel and Atmo recharges are being done at one of the other rim stays. There are 13 vessels in line behind us waiting their turn for this berth, so we've been instructed to kick you off and go. That wasn't a bad thing. A small, overburdened station meant corners were being cut. I had faith in our fake ident profiles, but this was our first make-or-break moment, and success mattered. I needn't have been concerned. Once we were on Soursop, and our idents were scanned by the frazzled-looking man at the desk, he saw that we'd done our interviews in advance and just passed us through. He didn't even open the reports. Assuming anything horrible would have been blinking in red or whatever, the guy just pressed a confirmation seal on his tablet for each of us, one after the other, and gestured to the station entrance impatiently. We were in. The subject of our mission, Happy Choice, its true identity unknown to the locals, and even to us, really, until we laid eyes on it, was parked a million and a half kilometers away, across the hard vacuum of open space. And I could almost taste it. You have been listening to All He Surveys, Volume 1, a Star Drifter novel written and read by David Collins Rivera. This story is copyright 2022 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called i by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The All He Surveys theme is a piece called Blossom by Edward Malov and is licensed through tribeofnoise.com. This story is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead nor any particular place or situation. Any similarities to such are purely coincidental. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. You can also check out my site, davidcollinsrivera.com, where you'll find everything Star Drifter, including more audio novels and stories, the Star Drifter tabletop role-playing game, podcasts, 
newsletters, and more. Stop by, won't you, and drop me a line. Thank you for listening. Take care.